and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an article written in 2018, Autocratic Legalism, which has been translated into a book in Hebrew and has become a must-read in Israel to explain the movement by Netanyahu and the Israeli right from democracy to autocracy. Joining us is the author of the article, Kim Lane Shepley, a professor of sociology and international affairs at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. She lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and at Central European University and studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia. She is the author of 9-11, The Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law and had a prescient article in the New York Times, What Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are Learning About the politics of retribution. Then we'll examine the attempt underway to help elect Trump by appealing to moderate Republicans and independents offering an alternative to Biden via a phony bipartisan front funded by Republican dark money calling itself No Labels. Joining us is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of The American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other publications, and we'll discuss his latest article at the American Prospect, The Plutocratic Policies of No Labels. Then finally, with 81-year-old Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezing during a press conference yesterday, and 90-year-old Senator Feinstein having to be told repeatedly to vote aye today in a Senate vote on the NDAA. We will speak with Jill Quadagno, an award-winning author and Professor Emerita of Sociology at Florida State University, where she held the Mildred and Claude Pepper Eminent Scholar Chair in Social Gerontology. She's the author of more than 50 articles and 12 books on aging and social policy issues, including The Color of Welfare, How Racism Undermined the War on Poverty, and her latest, Aging and the Life Course, an Introduction to Social Gerontology. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Kim Lane Shepley, who's a professor of sociology and international affairs at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. She lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching both at the University of Budapest and Central European University. She also studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and in Russia. And she is the author of 9-11 and the Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law, And she had a prescient article in the New York Times last year, what Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis are learning about the politics of retribution. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kim Lane Shepley. Lovely to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Kim. And uh, are you aware that you're a rock star in Israel, that uh, (laughs) they've 
they've discovered your article in 2018 uh, that you wrote, Autocratic Legalism, and they've turned it into a Hebrew edition of a book. And it's a must-read in Israel at the moment. So what happened there? <laughs> well, first of all, I've been uh, writing about the kind of thing that Israel's now experiencing for some time, where somebody with autocratic ambitions gets into office and then does this legal blitz where they try to change the constitutional structure by eliminating all checks on the executive power at once. And that's what's happening in Israel. Um, fortunately, I have a lot of friends and former students who are in Israel and knew about my work. So when the whole thing started, um, I immediately got phone calls from a whole variety of law professors in Israel saying, what does this look like to you and what should we do? Um, so, you know, I've been basically in communication with the Israeli opposition since the beginning and was delighted when a young constitutional law scholar proposed translating this essay of mine, m publishing it as a small book. I should add his name is Yonatan Levy, and the book was made a success by the fact that he added an essay to mine that connects what I said in 2018 about how these kinds of constitutional coups happen, he connected it with what's happening in Israel. So I want to give a shout out to him and give him credit for making this a, a relevant piece in Israel now. But you were writing largely about Hungary, were you not, back in 2018? Well, I started writing about Hungary, but you know, once you look at how one of these autocratic takeovers works, you begin to see patterns all over the place. So shortly after Hungary succumbed to you know autocracy, Poland followed suit. I then realized that while I'd lived in Russia, that all of that was happening at a slower pace there as well. And then you have Turkey and now you have India. Before that, you had Venezuela and then Brazil. So it turns out when you look around the world, you see that there are actually quite a few countries which had been, you know, not always perfect democracies, in fact, often flawed democracies. But those flaws were magnified when somebody came into office with a legalistic streak and decided to change all the laws to prevent power from ever leaving their hands again. And your article back in 2018, Autocratic Legalism, it first appeared in the University of Chicago Law Review, and it's been considered an update to Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism for the 21st Century, which is quite an honor, uh, <laughs> albeit the subject matter is so grim. In her case, it was Hitler. In your case, it's Orban, Erdogan, Putin, Netanyahu, the whole horrible gang that are using democratic means to install autocracy. Well, the thing about the 20th, 21st century dictators compared with the 20th century ones that Hannah Arendt wrote about is that the 21st century dictators know all about those 20th century dictators and they don't want to be confused with them. So they don't do the same things that the 20th century dictators did. I mean, now we'd recognize it. So, you know, suddenly you seize power, the military takes over, your enemies are put in jail, you know, rights are violated on a massive scale, you know, and, and on and on. There's a kind of script for these things that would get all of us to say, hey, wait a second, the government is really in trouble here. You know, we we have a serious problem. So what the current autocrats do is something else that it escapes public notice until you point out what the pattern is. So the new autocrats campaign, you know, they often campaign as 
as populists. They say, you know, there's something seriously broken with the system. It needs change. They're kind of vague about what the change is, but they imply that really, you know, there needs to be root and branch transformation of the government, oftentimes because people are fed up with their governments these days. These uh, change makers, as they advertise themselves, get elected, and then they can they can operate in one of three ways. So one is they can do what Orban d- did, and as Netanyahu does now, and as Chavez did in Venezuela after 1998, and that is they come to power, and within the first month, you know, they're off to the races. They start immediately uh, dismantling the system that they put in place by changing fundamental constitutional structures. So that's a a system that relies on the opposition being too stunned to mobilize itself in time to prevent the changes. What Israel has benefited from is the fact that once you see how this happened in Venezuela and Hungary, when this started in Israel, the opposition was right on it. I mean, they got together immediately. They've been protesting really since the first day that these new laws were rolled out. And they realize now because they see the pattern, you know, what's going on. So that's one kind of structure. And I think that's why the Israelis were prepared. But there's two other uh, ways that this can happen. Um, One is what happened in Turkey and in Russia. And those are cases where, you know, Putin and Erdogan, when they first came to power, were celebrated as reformers uh, who had inherited a giant mess of a governmental structure Everybody acknowledged that there needed to be major changes. The changes that were made in the initial days looked like changes that were going to make the system more democratic, more responsive, more compliant with global norms, etc. And then anywhere from three, four, five, seven years in to their reigns, suddenly these legal reforms started taking an autocratic turn. But it was often very hard to see when the turn happened because there was very often a democratic rationale you could offer for a lot of the changes. So those were systems that were really hard to spot because what looked like the good guys turned into the bad guys without, you know, changing the colors of their hats, so to speak. They they looked like the same people, so it was hard to recognize when they went over into an autocratic fashion. You know, and, and then there's this third category, and here I would put Italy, the UK, the US, um, possibly uh, India as well, where you have an autocratic aspirant, you know, who gains office, shakes things up, looks like they're going to take the country into a ditch, and then they lose an election. Uh, Brazil actually might be in this category, you'd say. So the the autocrat loses an election because they can't lock everything down in their first term in office, and they haven't changed enough, you know, and they and they look dangerous enough that the public votes them out. So then you get a Democrat, not capital D Democrat, but small D Democrat, somebody who wants to restore the constitutional democratic order. They come into office, they try to fix a lot of the damage that the autocrat caused, but they often can't fix it fast enough. So then they get voted out of office, the autocrat comes back, and you get this, this alternation you know, between autocrats, Democrats, autocrats, Democrats. That's what I call autocracy on the fence, where you don't actually know which way it's going in the long term, but where democracy is not healthy and it remains vulnerable at any point. So it's not just this Israeli blitz that causes this problem, although the Israeli blitz was easier to spot at the beginning. But there are a lot of governments that are sort of hovering on the fence that go in and out 
of being, you know, heading toward the autocracy door and heading toward the democracy door. And in fact, most governments in the world these days are kind of mixed. You know, there are hardly any governments that look remarkably democratically stable where you simply can't imagine that there might be some collapse. Well, your article, which was in May of 2022 in the New York Times, Kim Lane Shapley, titled What Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis Are Learning About the Politics of Retribution. Now, it looks as if maybe since uh, you wrote the article that Ron DeSantis is sort of fizzling and may have gone too far, you know, saying that African slaves in America were learning job skills and it it wasn't so bad. I mean... Mercifully, it looks as if he's fading, but Donald Trump is on the rise. And I don't think there's any question that Donald Trump, if he gets reelected, he's going to shake off all the pretenses of democracy. He's making it clear that he wants uh, retribution. He wants to weaponize the government to to go against his enemies. Um, He's full-blown fascist. Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I always hate to use... Um, labels like fascist, for example, I mean, partly because that comes with a specific kind of ideology. And the new fascism has a different feel to it. Um, And, you know, and it often has different sort of substantive pleas. But yeah, I mean, one of the things I think we've learned from DeSantis in Florida and from Trump's Trump's first term, I, I must say, just to just to say one thing about Trump, Uh, In many ways, the U.S. was lucky because Trump was just too undisciplined to use all the power that he actually had. Um, He was he had a Congress willing to go along with him with virtually everything he did. And he didn't use that to actually entrench a lot of his his uh, autocratic ways. Um, And so we benefit now from the disorganization of Trump in his first term. But I think what you can see both in the realm in the range of the Democratic of the contenders for the Republican nomination and in what you hear about their plans for taking office, that they don't intend to let that power pass from their hands ever again. And it's not really reliant on Trump. It's really a party based thing. So whether it's it's DeSantis or Trump or whatever, what you see coming are tactics that are really borrowed from these autocratic regimes, including Viktor Orban. So what I wrote about last year was this use of of state, uh, the state regulatory power to go after companies that don't toe the party line, you know, as DeSantis did with with Disney and as Orban has done regularly. I mean, Orban has regulated certain sectors of the economy essentially out of private hands into public hands and then reprivatized them in the hands of his friends. So, you know, you can take this, you can you can use state regulation for you know, basically expropriation of all your political enemies. And that's what Orban has done. But it goes beyond that. I mean, it, it goes to things like, you know, killing off the independence of the civil service, which Orban, you know, also uh, did early on in his his uh, term of office. Um, because if you can put your people deep into the state, then even if some election happens to go the other way, you've got your people in there weaponized, to not follow orders from a different commander in chief, so to speak. So, you know, what you see is, you know, are hints of Republican plans to do that kind of thing in the United States. And of course, what we're seeing with the protests in Israel is that kind of takeover of all of Israel's independent institutions 
that could pose any checks on the power of the prime minister. I mean, there too, they're also one of the big elements of Netanyahu's plan that hasn't been voted on yet also has to do with disabling key civil service positions and making them political appointees. That goes along with Netanyahu's proposals to create a political judiciary, both with clip wings so it can't do much, but also to give it some powers to simply shore up the regime and punish political enemies. So, you know, there's a well-known script for these things, and it's happening in lots of different places. And the U.S. is not immune to this. We've got an autocratic threat right here on our own doorstep. Well, according to Haaretz, and Haaretz is definitely a newspaper on the left in Israel, which is dominated, obviously, by right-wing newspapers. You just mentioned Adelson's uh, newspaper, which is free, and how it's had uh, a lot of influence. But Adelson was asked towards the end of his life about supporting the far right in Israel and, and its drift towards authoritarianism. And he said, so Israel won't be a democratic state? So what? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> right, well. Th- so the extent to which, though, the Israeli left are portraying Netanyahu as an authoritarian leader, heart and soul, I'm quoting from Haaretz, he palled around with populists like Donald Trump and, yeah, uh, Bolsonaro and maintain close relationships with shameless dictators like Orban and Vladimir Putin. So is he is that a fair description? Well, I mean, so certainly you see that that all these leaders with autocratic ambitions all think of themselves as being part of the same club. And, you know, what's so striking is how that club um, persists even across really large ideological divides. I mean, remember that Orban in 2000. 18 actually launched his political campaign uh, that year with a huge anti-Semitic campaign against George Soros. And so what's Netanyahu doing, you know, supporting somebody who led this anti-Semitic campaign? Worse yet, Netanyahu showed up in Hungary to say, oh, actually, you know, Orban's not really anti-Semitic. We all hate George Soros, too. (laughs) And so even though clearly the way that campaign read in Hungary with its long history of anti-Semitism, was not just as a campaign against Soros, but a broader anti-Semitic appeal to Hungarian nationalists. And Netanyahu overtly backed him in that. So, it's so yeah, these guys hang out together, and they don't actually, how to put it, they, they don't actually care what the others say in public as their sort of populist appeals. What really unites them is this effort to kind of rearrange the plumbing, so to speak, to rearrange you know, the infrastructure of government so that they stay in power forever. That's really the goal. The rest of it is just words. So, yes, so, yes, they're allied. They they talk to each other. They trade ideas back and forth. And, um, and yeah, I think it's fair to say that Netanyahu has been in that club for a long time. He just didn't have the coalition partners willing to go along with it until after this last election. So just in closing then, Kim, Given that we've seen this autocratic takeover, and you mentioned all the countries, not just Israel, but left or right, Venezuela, uh, Hungary, India, Turkey, and uh, Israel, and possibly the United States, the fact that the demonstrations in Israel are so massive is surely encouraging because I think a lot of Israelis basically understand that how can you call yourself the only democracy 
in the Middle East um, and then end up like a the- theocracy and an autocracy like the Arab neighbors that you criticize. Um, that, I think, is resonating. What's going to resonate here, though? You know, here we are, we celebrate the fact that we're the world's oldest democracy or the most enduring democracy, and yet it's up for grabs. And certainly if Trump comes back, it's all over. Yeah, well, so first of all, in Israel, what I've been really heartened by is the fact that many of these demonstrators in the streets are not just on the left. Um, There were sort of, shall we say, constitutional conservatives who have also joined the opposition um, and who are out there demonstrating. So basically what you're seeing in Israel, something like two thirds of Israelis are opposed to these reforms. And the left in Israel, frankly, isn't that big. So what may stop Israel, what may be Israel's greatest asset is the fact that the moderate conservatives have recognized that this crosses a line into dictatorship. And that's really a significant point. And I make that point because I'm not sure we're there yet in the United States. You know, you can actually not really have a democracy without the center right adhering to constitutional norms. There's some really interesting historical work by Dan Seiblad at Harvard and others that shows that really the future of constitutional democracy rests with whether center-right parties agree to play by constitutional rules or not, or whether they start to move towards something that looks more like fascism. And now in the United States, unfortunately, the organized Republican Party is looking much more extreme and much less constitutionally committed than a center-right party should be. In fact, it's not really in the center-right anymore by almost any measure of its, of its political program. So what the United States needs is something more like what's happening in Israel, which is for all those who are committed to democracy, and by democracy I mean just the ability to change leaders with fair and free elections, um, you have to be committed to that even if you lose, right? And so the, what, what we need in the U.S. Is, is for all the major parties, like all two of them, <laughs> to be committed to losing elections if they don't get the votes and to not trying to undermine the system when that happens. And right now, I'm not sure we're in that space. So I think the U.S. is in many ways in an even more dangerous situation than Israel because we haven't yet had that split among conservatives where the vast majority of conservatives realize that this is not a left-right issue, but this is a democracy-autocracy issue, and that's a totally different thing. Well, Kim Lane Shepley, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me back again. And again, I'll be speaking with Kim Lane Shepley. He's a professor of sociology and international affairs at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. She lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and at Central European University. And she studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia. And she is the author of 9-11 and the Rise of Global Anti-Terrorism Law. And she has a prescient article. And she had a prescient And she had a prescient article at the New York Times last year, What Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis Are Learning About the Politics of Retribution. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the attempt underway to help elect by appealing to moderate Republicans and independents offering an alternative to Biden via a phony bipartisan front funded by Republican dark money calling itself No Labels. 
But our union's gonna break them slavery chains And our union's gonna break them slavery chains I walked up on a mountain in the middle of the sky Could see every farm and every town I could see all the people in this whole wide world That's a union that'll tear the fascists down, down, down That's a union that'll tear the fascists down Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Harold Myerson, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of the American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at the American Prospect is The Plutocratic Policies of No Labels. Welcome to Background Briefing, Harold Myerson. Always good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Harold. And do you consider no labels to be the greatest threat to the Democrats or particularly the re-election of President Biden, as many others well, do? It's certainly, yeah, it, it's certainly a major threat. There's no doubt about that. Uh, it, uh, you know, basically most of the polling, if not all the polling, shows that it would uh, do more to siphon votes from Biden than from Donald Trump. And that's pretty much the only way, I think, that Donald Trump could uh, emerge victorious next year. So, yes, it's, uh, it's a real threat. Also, I mean, part of the point of my article was that, you know, it has been uh, it put out a 72 page platform that took almost no positions like saying, well, we need a balance between a woman's right to choose and uh, the sanctity of unborn life, yada, yada, yada. And uh, basically took a, a slew of traditional Republican positions on economic issues. Uh, so, I mean, if it were a threat itself that it might win or Joe Manchin might win or whoever its candidate may be, uh, those positions are, are, you know, bad in themselves. But its main threat, since it's not going to win, is it could well uh, elect Donald Trump. But I think there's another dimension to this, Harold, in as much as if you look at the 2020 election, the important swing states, Biden only won by about 50,000 votes in the Electoral College. Otherwise, even though he had 7 million more votes in the popular vote, he could have lost to Trump, but for 50,000 votes. And most analysis of those votes came from disaffected Republicans who abandoned the tribe, which is not easy for Republicans to do, but they were sufficiently appalled by Trump that they abandoned the tribe, held their nose, and voted for a Democrat for the first time. Those voters would be taken away by no labels, would they not? Uh, most of them would. And since, as you point out, uh, Biden's margin in the critical swing states was so small, it doesn't take a lot switching to no labels uh, to push the victory into Trump's column rather than Biden. So, yes, that is a real threat. So what do we know about them and their financing since they won't talk about uh, who is behind them and who's f financing them? And we know it's coming from dark money. And uh, Nancy Jacobson, the co-chair, along with former Senator Lieberman, she says in the, one of the rare interviews she gave, but, oh, she doesn't want to embarrass her, her, her donors. And her husband, of course, is Mark Penn, who's a fixture on Fox News. So 
there's some suspicion, I don't know whether it's founded or not, since apparently Miriam Adelson has given the money and this Nazi lover who funds Clarence Thomas, Harlan Crow, has given them no money. What, what do you know about the funding? Well, there has been some reporting identifying individual uh, donors, including, as you said, Mary Mandelson and uh, Harlan Crow, uh, who clearly support Donald Trump. Uh, and, you know, this is sort of a, a backdoor way on their part uh, to actually boost Trump by backing an entity that's likely to siphon off some critical votes from Joe Biden. So I think, in, in a sense, no labels really is a, uh, a, a secretive society devoted to, uh, you know, waging a campaign under false pretenses when uh, really the intent of its major donors is to elect Donald Trump. But given Miriam Adelson's uh, donation, is there any suggestion that No Labels is a stalking horse for Netanyahu? Because we know he wants Trump to come back and would love to get rid of uh, Biden. Clearly, Biden is not happy with what's happening now in Israel. I neither, think neither is a yeah, lot of Israelis, I, I might add. Right, right. A, a clear majority of Israelis, according to the polling. Um, yeah, well, I mean, for Miriam Adelson, that is a highly uh, likely additional motivation on her part. Uh, she, of course, is the widow of Sheldon Adelson, and their uh, chief concern has always been uh, backing Netanyahu in Israel to the extent of their creation of a new daily newspaper there, which they fund, uh, which uh, exists basically to uh, support uh, whatever Bibi's line is at any given moment. So, yeah, I mean, that, I, I think that's certainly a plausible motivation for Miriam, Miriam Adelson. Uh, I don't think Harlan Crow gives a damn one way or the other. And if there are other, you know, I assume other Republican mega donors uh, who back Trump, uh, I, I, I don't think uh, Israeli politics is uppermost in their minds. But we know, as a matter of fact, that it is certainly uppermost in Miriam Adelson's mind. So let's turn to your article at the American Prospect, Harold Meyerson, The Plutocratic Policies of No Labels. You point out that Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Mike Pence have all gone on the campaign trail saying that they need to cut Social Security, that, you know, that old canard that's going to be bankrupt. But Donald Trump, very cleverly and very openly, has always supported both Social Security and Medicare. And I think he's done very well by it, right? He's yes, way he up has. in the polls. Well, I mean, that was one reason why he was president and none of the above or any of the 16 candidates on the Republican primaries who ran against him in 2016, why they didn't make it and he did. Uh, yes, that's, that's a key element in, uh, uh, in part of his uh, campaign rhetoric. And he you know, he in fact didn't really, you know, do anything to undermine Social Security or Medicare while he was president. So the same policies which DeSantis, Nikki Haley and Mike Pence are pushing, Social Security reform is exactly what is in the 72-page platform of No Labels, which is complete pablum, mum and apple pie uh, nonsense, as you, as you pointed out. On abortion, they say America must strike a balance between protecting women's rights to control their own reproductive health and our society's responsibility to protect human life. 
That's very, <laughs> very brave of them, right? <laughs> so they're but, pro-choice and uh, and and anti, uh, you know, pro-choice and anti-abortion. Go figure that one right. out. Right, uh, <laughs> but they're lining up against Social Security with in what you call the spare the rich and screw the non-rich policies, right? Which go yeah, well, you know what they their... say is yeah, they address a whole page to the need to uh, re- rejigger Social Security and. They say, well, we don't want to hurt the poor and uh, we don't want there to be uh, high tax rate, high tax increases either. Well, look, uh, I mean, there's obviously going to be a rising number of retirees who will be collecting rather than putting into Social Security. And the only way uh, to keep uh, Social Security solvent under that is either you cut uh, benefits or you raise taxes. Now, we have such a you know, abundance of, of the plutocratic rich that you would think they would say, okay, we'll raise taxes. But they say the same thing those three above-named Republicans say, which is, well, we don't want to change uh, Social Security and Medicare, you know, for people who are already on it. Well, that creates, you know, by that omits what's going to happen to Social Security for people who are now in their, let's say, low 50s and 40s and 30s and 20s. You know, they, uh, there's nothing saying, and we're going to keep it sound for them. Uh, so by by omission and by the commission of saying, well, we don't want to really raise taxes uh, to a high level, uh, despite the fact that, progr- that the funding for Social Security can be made much more progressive, uh, you know, they're, they're in fact saying, okay, we're going to sock it to uh, future retirees. Well, you know, I mean, I don't see how that's any different from the standard Republican formula, which the uh, non-Trump Republicans are all spouting uh, on the campaign trail right now. There's a simple fix, and that is to increase the progressivity of Social Security taxes. In other words, have Harlan Crow pay more than what he pays his elderly gardener, right? Right, right, or even his young gardener, yes. Uh, <laughs> well, it's yeah, somebody I past mean, 65. Uh, you know, there's you a know. cutoff, there's, there's an income cutoff uh, beyond which you don't contribute to the Social Security Fund. And since we have uh, folks running around who have billions of dollars, and we have a lot more of those folks than we used to, that means they are ex- exempt uh, and, and for Social Security taxed at a minuscule rate of their income, whereas somebody who makes fifty or $100,000 is taxed at a substantial rate of their income. And somehow or other, if you're concerned about guaranteeing the uh, retirements of Americans, you need to uh, change that picture. So your article, Harold, suggests that this no-labels position on Social Security gives Joe Biden an opening if he finds himself running against them. Because it uh, it clearly has benefited Trump to be in favor of not touching Social Security and Medicaid. So, just walk us through what. Well, I if sincerely if hope it doesn't again. get to the point. The truth of the matter is that no labels is busily getting on the ballot. They're already on the ballot in Arizona, and they're going after the ballot in all all important swing states. And yeah. nobody's well, had the juice yeah. to do that since Ross Perot 
So they're spending right. a lot of money. It's a big deal to get on these ballots. So they're not doing it for the ways that they're saying they are, which is, oh, yeah, we just want to have some other choices, but we're not going to be spoilers. Well, I got a bridge to sell you, if oh. you believe that. Exactly. Well, let, let's say Joe Biden is on the debate stage with Donald Trump and with Joe Manchin, who is the name whose name is the one that most commonly comes up as the probable nominee of no labels. Well, he, I mean, he can turn to Joe Manchin and say, look, uh, you know, you're not committed to uh, uh, saving Social Security. And he can turn to both Manchin and Donald Trump and say, look, you guys oppose a woman's right to choose. I support it. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, significant issue contrasts that a Joe Biden uh, can make, not just with a Donald Trump, but with a, a no labels nominee like uh, uh, like Joe Manchin. And that I think he would be very well. Uh, uh, he'd do very well by making such con uh, comparisons uh, in the course of a, in the course of a debate, because really the no labels position is sort of identical in almost everything with a conventional Republican position, and uh, that ain't notably popular. Right, but they've obviously got a lot of money behind them, and it's dark money coming from billionaires who apparently are, yeah. are almost all, if not all, Republicans. So that's highly suspicious. So is there any way to name and shame them, to smoke them out, and to get them to... Well, I mean, the fact that she won't even speak, when, you know, Nancy well, Jacobson. Right now, that right now it's it's you know, it's it's uh, very difficult uh, at the point at which they actually have a presidential candidate, then the contributions to that candidate have to be made public. But, you know, we also know that uh, there are uh, PACs and uh, and super funds and things that are uh, whose donors are not necessarily identified. And I would surmise that all the heavy-duty Republican money that's going into the no-labels nominee will go into something like that. And it's up to folks like us, that is to say, uh, journalists, to dig and come up with the identities of those donors. And I, I think come September of 2024, it will be a big story that you see Trump backers being the main financial support for, uh, for the no-labels candidate, assuming that in fact, there will be a no-labels candidate. Well, Manchin, of course, got a big win today thanks to, to Joe Biden and the Supreme Court. They, the, the pipeline that he's championing in West Virginia, well, it's going to be built. The stay on it has been lifted. Yeah, well, obviously, but in general, on, on environmental issues, Joe Biden's record is a hell of a lot better than uh, Joe Manchin's, not to mention Donald Trump's. And on the, just a whole slew of issues, paid sick leave, free community college, you know, conversion to, you know, a green energy to keep the climate from baking us by, by next year and in, into uh, little assemblages of char or whatever we would uh, be baked into. The contrasts are there. I mean, Joe Manchin has opposed so much of what, you know, is basically the Democratic agenda that he's, you know, almost as ripe for targeting as Donald Trump. Right, but I'm wondering whether the ruling today is, is kind of a bribe to the guy, you know, because he's got leverage well, over, look, over I mean, Biden. Biden. He screwed his whole agenda, for God's sake. People, 
yeah, the Biden people are in kind of a bind. They really want Joe Manchin not to run for president and to, you know, be the run for reelection as senator from West Virginia. Not that they really like what he does, but it's going to be hard for them, impossible for them to win the state, uh, for, uh, for the Democrats to hold the state in the Senate if uh, Biden is not the nominee, and therefore it would be all the harder for the Democrats to maintain a majority in the Senate. So, you know, on the one hand, they want to be nice to him. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, so long as it's a possibility that he'll run for reelection in the Senate. Uh, but, you know, they also, I am certain, have compiled mountains of stuff to use against him the moment he says, I'm not running for the Senate, I'm running for president. And the other possibility is Kirsten Sinema, who I think is equally unpopular with the Democrats, isn't she? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, they're the dynamic duo of doom for Democratic legislation. There's no question about it. And, you know, it's, she has yet to say what she's doing. And uh, uh, Ruben Gallego, who is a progressive member of the House from uh, uh, from Arizona, uh, has already declared he's a candidate uh, for uh, the Democratic uh, nomination. And she's already said she's not, you know, she's an independent, but she caucuses with the Democrats. So there's no question that Gallego will be the Democratic nominee in Arizona. But then there is the whole question of, uh, well, do we back Cinema because we think she can win or do we back Gallego? I actually think Cinema doesn't have a constituency anymore. Uh, yes, she does. She has a constituency on Wall Street, Harold. <laughs> yes, I, that was what I was just about to say. And yes, <laughs> all of her contributions come from Wall Street. But, uh, you know, the Arizona Republican Party is insane well to her right. And the entire Democratic Party is lined up uh, in Arizona uh, behind Gallego. And I'm not sure even with all that Wall Street money that there are actual voters in Arizona who go for cinema. Well, Harold Marston, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Always good to be here, Ian. Thank you, Harold. And again, I've been speaking with Harold Marston, one of the nation's best-known progressive columnists and editor-at-large of the American Prospect. He also writes regularly about California politics for the Los Angeles Times and other national publications. And his latest article at the American Prospect is The Plutocratic Policies of No Labels. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an incident yesterday when the 81-year-old Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell froze during a press conference, and today the 90 and today the 90-year-old Senator Feinstein was told repeatedly to vote aye in a Senate vote on the NDAA. Well, I met you on election night. As we cried over our beer Nothing you could do would cheer me up We broke up later that year Well, how come you and I aren't winners? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jill Quidagno, an award-winning author and emeritus professor of sociology at Florida State University, where she held Mildred and Claude Pepper, eminent scholar chair in social gerontology. 
She is the author of more than 50 articles and 12 books on ageing and social policy issues, including The Colour of Welfare, How Racism Undermined the War on Poverty, and her latest book is Ageing and the Life Course, an Introduction to Social Gerontology. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jill Guadagno. Thank you. So thanks for joining us, Jill. And yesterday, the 81-year-old Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, was giving a press conference, and he suddenly froze. And it was quite alarming to watch, actually. And then equally alarmed were the senators surrounding him in the background, all of whom came forward and tried to help him. And that was pretty disturbing. But then today... Senator Feinstein, who's 90 years old and is the oldest member serving in the United States Senate, on Thursday at a hearing on the Defense Appropriations Bill, where she was required to say A or nay, when her name was called, she didn't answer. And then Democratic Senator Patty Murray uh, sort of whispered to her just to prompt her, just say I, she said, repeating herself three times to uh, Diane Feinstein. And then Feinstein, instead of saying I, she started to read from prepared remarks. And then she was interrupted by an aide who whispered in her ear. And then Patty Murray then once more said to her, just just say I. And then Feinstein replied, mm-hmm. okay, just. And then Murray again said, I. And then Feinstein sat back in a chair. I, she finally said, casting her vote. So... Some people have to see this, I mean, without being an ageist and somehow impugning the fact that a 90-year-old person is not fit to be in the United States Senate, the the questions arise about, clearly, about her competence. And since you've studied gerontology, Jill, what are the, the cutoff points? What, what is the shelf life? Is there any understanding of or consensus of when people are simply too old to be in public service? Well, I think there is no consensus on that question because some people obviously have severe health problems when they're considerably younger and others carry on quite well when when they're well into their 70s or even in their 80s. So the issue is really, is there a solution and what can be done about this? And people don't want to just say, you know, older adults should not be allowed to serve or should have to, uh, you know, be uh, eliminated from the Senate because they don't want to sound ageist. So what, you know, what you were just telling me about Diane Feinstein uh, is disturbing, um, but a lot of people would say uh, that are afraid actually to respond to to that situation for fear of sounding ageist. And of course, there's less concern about ageism, perhaps, and racism, sexism, but still, it's out there. So, um, so the, the the issue really is more one of discrimination uh, on the basis of age rather than is there a set cutoff where people should no longer be allowed to serve. And Congress has addressed this issue already with the Age Discrimination in Employment Act, making it unlawful to discriminate among 
employees who are 40 and older up to age 65. Um, and you know, when they passed that law, they were concerned that older workers would find themselves disadvantaged in keeping their jobs, that, uh, that setting arbitrary age limits for job performance was an undesirable practice and that the incidence of unemployment of older people was higher at that time than it was in, uh, among younger people. So there were, there were many reasons for banning age discrimination, but let me just say it does not apply to people in their 80s and in their 90s. So uh, a mandatory retirement age is a form of age discrimination because it's tantamount to involuntary termination. So the United States has been something of a leader even worldwide in eliminating, or at least try, not eliminating, but in trying to reduce age discrimination and in banning mandatory retirement, which is a situation that you were just describing, you know, clearly creates a different set of issues and different set of problems. Um, for instance, universities have had to deal with faculty who refuse to retire um, and they, they can't make them retire, so they solve the problem through incentives that make retirement attractive. But, uh, you know, we do have a few examples where mandatory retirement is allowed, like airline pilots. Um, Congress, I believe it was last week, just passed a law raising the age of mandatory retirement for pilots to 67, uh, when it was 55 and before that it was 60. Um, judges in many states have mandatory retirement at age 70. So, um, you know, clearly this is an issue, especially in the Senate, where people get elected to six-year terms, much less so a problem in the House, I would suspect. Um, but the only solution is through the voters or potentially the political parties that could be used to support candidates. But, you know, obviously that's uh, not a, a really good solution. So we're kind of left with nothing that can be done um, if you leave it to the voters and you have to wait six years. And they may not, uh, you know, they may still reelect someone that not up to doing their job as well as they could be. Well, Nikki Haley, who's 51, she's running for president, and when she launched her candidacy for the presidency in 2024, she said, America is not past our prime, it's just that our politicians are past theirs. So that's a fairly blatant uh, uh, remark, I guess, and the top leaders in the Democratic Party up until recently, Nancy Pelosi, 82, Stanley mm -hmm. Hoyer, 83, and Jim Clyburn, 82. Of course, Ronald Reagan was in his second term. There was indications that he had the onset of dementia. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that was fairly cleverly covered up, if it ever were the case. I don't think anybody said anything about it in the press until later. So, and of course, Claude Pepper, by the way, what was his age when he finally retired? He was from the... 80. He died uh, in office. In I thought 88. so, yeah. 88. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, when I first got hired by Florida State, which was in 1987, because um, I had a chair in his name, he invited me to spend a day with him in Washington, and I ran all over the castle with him. He wore me out. He had so much energy <laughs> and, uh, you know, introduced Adele and took me to lunch. And so, you know, clearly he was very competent to be doing his job at, at 88. So, I, you know, I, for example, Jill, uh, a friend who died recently uh, was a veteran actor, Norman Lloyd. He died at the age of 105. He was still sharp to the, when he was 105, still t- regaling you with stories about Hitchcock, his buddy Hitch, and and Charlie Chapman. You know, going back to the 30s. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just an encyclopedia. So again, back to the notion that there's no set age, is there, of when people are incapable of handling important duties like being a U.S. senator. No, that's very, very true, and there's a great deal of diversity among individuals, as I mentioned. Um, I I should note that fewer than 10% of men and women over 70 are in the labor force, so Congress is really, I think it's about 8% for men and maybe 6 or 7% for women, so well over 90% of people over 70 uh, retired. Uh, so Congress is really an outlier in this respect. Um, and there is seemingly no simple way to terminate the employment of senators who are not capable of doing their job. And in fact, there is, it is difficult to even determine the criteria to be used uh, if there were such a way. Um, you know, clearly the case of Senator Feinstein is a, is a difficult one. Um, if Mitch McConnell had a moment, maybe 95% of the time he's able to do his job competently. Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to those questions. Right, but we have the example of the Soviet Union being a gerontocracy, right? Uh, right. Sort of ground to a halt under a series of aged and infirm and quite sick leaders with Brezhnev and Dropov, Chinyenka, and then finally a younger man, Gorbachev, came in. So I don't know what the answer is here, but obviously the Republicans are making a big deal out of Biden being 80 years old, and on Fox News they try to make fun of him all the time, suggest that he's he's over the hill, and and, uh, but he's only a couple of years younger than Donald Trump. Uh, a couple of years right. older than Donald Trump. A couple of years older, right. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because when Biden was running for president, people thought the age would be an issue, but it turned out not to be. And especially among younger voters, they voted voters under 35 highly favored Biden over Trump. Uh, and so they didn't see it as an issue. And so the voters clearly did not uh, vote on the basis of age or vote against someone on the basis of age. Of course, they have two older candidates uh, in terms of Trump and Biden. So 
perhaps if one of the parties had had a vigorous younger person, they might have prevailed on that basis. But uh, from the voting patterns, it doesn't appear to be the case. Well, Jill Guadagno, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Jill Codagno, an award-winning author and emeritus professor of sociology at Florida State University, where she held eminent scholar chair in social gerontology. She's the author of more than 50 articles and 12 books on aging and social policy issues, including The Color of Welfare, How Racism Undermined the War on Poverty, and her latest book is Aging and the Life Course, An Introduction to Social Gerontology. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared